0: Welcome, everyone, to episode 15 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and welcome back from the week off. I took advantage of that time and found a pretty interesting story about a cult and its leader, Jeffrey Lundgren, that was active here in Ohio in the 1980s. So let's just get right into the story. Sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Jeff Lundgren was a self-proclaimed prophet and mass murderer who killed five people on April 17, 1989, in Kirtland, Ohio. Lundgren led a Latter-day Saint movement-based cult, and he interpreted the scripture using an unconventional method that he described as chastic. This method involved searching text for recurring patterns. He and several of his followers murdered the Avery family, fellow members of his cult, for which he was convicted and sentenced to death. Jeff Lundgren was born on May 3, 1950, in Independence, Missouri, and grew up as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. According to both Lundgren and a few of his neighbors, he was severely abused as a child, particularly by his father. He was described as a loner throughout middle and high school and as a teenager, his relationship with his father got a little better. They would both take frequent hunting trips together. Jeff became a gun expert, learning hunting and gun maintenance techniques. Lundgren would later enroll at the Central Missouri State University and spend most of his time at a house that was built for Latter-day Saint youth. This is where he met and became friends with Alice Keeler and Keith Johnson. Alice, who was also severely abused by her father, quickly bonded with Jeffrey and they soon became lovers. In 1970, the couple would get married and Jeffrey would join the U.S. Navy, but not before their first son was born on December 2, 1970. Their second child was born in 1974, right after Jeffrey received an honorable discharge from the Navy after just one tour of service. He tried to get an early release, stating that he needed to be home to help take care of his family, but the Navy didn't seem to think that that was an important enough reason to discharge him early. With his new family, they settled in San Diego, California, but money problems made them move back to Missouri. In 1979, Alice gave birth to their third child, a daughter. Friends of the Lundgrens claimed that Jeffrey was becoming more and more stressed about their money issues and just generally getting tired of his wife, Alice. He would become physically abusive towards her after the birth of their daughter. According to hospital records, Alice was hospitalized due to a ruptured spleen after Jeffrey shoved her into a closet door handle. In 1980, they would have their fourth child, another boy. In April of 1984, Jeffrey and his family make the move to Kirtland, Ohio. While living in a home owned by the church, Jeffrey would lead tour groups around the historic Kirtland Temple that was next door. He began teaching the concept of dividing the word, better known as chastic interpretation, to interpret the scriptures. Lundgren falsely claimed that he was the one that came up with that way to interpret the scriptures. The foundation was that in everything created by God, the right side is a mirror image, and therefore scripture had to be interpreted using that same method. Lundgren cited the Kirtland Temple as an example because the right side was a mirror image of the left side. To apply this concept to scripture, one takes a sentence from scripture. If the sentences before and after are consistent, the center sentence is the truth. When the sentences before and after conflict, the center sentence is a lie. These teachings of scriptural interpretations by Lundgren attracted followers. He claimed that he moved to Ohio because the word Ohio is chastik. About 1987, Lundgren was asked to leave the Kirtland house, and his job as tour guide was terminated due to suspicions of theft. In April of 1987, Dennis Avery, who became a devoted follower of Jeffrey, moved from Missouri to Kirtland, Ohio. In November 1987, Lundgren and his family moved to a rented farmhouse. At that time, some followers started to move into his home. Those who moved into the house were Kevin Curie, Richard Brand, Greg Winship, Sharon Bluntschli, Daniel Kraft, Debbie Olivares, Ronald and Susan Luff, Dennis and Tanya Patrick, and Dennis and Cheryl Avery maintained their own residences. Some of his followers had known Lundgren in Missouri, while others were drawn to Lundgren at the Kirtland Temple. While Jeffrey was living at the farmhouse, he began to practice methods which were consistent with Robert Lifton's criteria for mind control. For example, cult members were forbidden to talk amongst themselves. Doing so was a sin called murmuring. Lundgren would eavesdrop on cult members to cause them to believe that he could read their minds. On April 23, 1988, a neighbor told Kirtland police officer that she suspected that a cult was living at the farmhouse and that Lundgren's sons warned the neighbor's children that the earth would open up and demons would emerge on May 15. On April 28, 1988, a former cult member referred by the FBI called Kirtland police and reported a conspiracy by the cult to take over the Kirtland temple. Kirtland's police chief, Dennis T. Yarborough, did not believe the informant's information and on May 2nd confronted Lundgren at the Kirtland police station. When Jeffrey left, he said that he neutralized the situation by warning Lundgren that there were complaints about gunfire on his property. Lundgren went back to his followers and called off the temple takeover, planned for May 3rd because he had purportedly spoken to a higher power. Kirtland police initiated surveillance on Lundgren's residence and of church-owned properties. In September of 1988, a second informant came forward. Officer Andalest cultivated the informant and made contact with the FBI and the ATF. The FBI then initiated a domestic terrorism investigation. On October 10, 1988, The day that Lundgren was excommunicated from the church, there was a thunderstorm at the south end of Kirtland. When the sun emerged, a large rainbow appeared to the east. Lundgren told his followers that the rainbow signified the opening of the seven seals. Lundgren and his family soon abandoned the group, and he began to feel a call to teach the Bible in the way he understood it. He formed his own splinter group soon after whose membership never exceeded twenty. This group was largely composed of conservative, conservative RLDS members who believed that God communicated through regular revelations, although some members admitted that they claimed to have revelations even when they did not. The conservatives were also opposed to more liberal rights for women in the church, which contributed to their decision to join the new sect. Lundgren's wife, Alice, told followers that she had once had a revelation that she would meet an important leader of the RLDS Church. She later concluded that this alleged revelation referred to Jeffrey Lundgren. Lundgren began to offer Bible study sessions at his home. There, he would dominate the sessions and intimidate anyone who did not agree with his interpretations of the scripture. Lundgren would later encourage others to intimidate those who disagreed as well, seeking to convince his sect that he was God's last prophet. He asked for money from his supporters, some of whom would give him their life savings, which often were calculated to be thousands of dollars. Lundgren then proclaimed that he had received a call from God to move to Kirtland, where he and his supporters would soon witness the second coming of Christ. He told his followers that it would be necessary to seize the temple by force and hold it for the monumentous event. The conspiracy involved burglarizing adjacent church homes and committing murder as part of the takeover. Lundgren called the land around the temple the vineyards, which had to be redeemed or cleansed for him and his followers to take the temple. By this time, seven of Lundgren's 12 followers had moved into the family's home. The remaining five were members of Dennis Avery's family. Lundgren felt that the Averys were committing a sin by not living in his house. The Avery family's father, Dennis, sold his Missouri house in order for his family to move to Ohio. Dennis Avery believed in Jeffrey completely and trusted him. Jeffrey, however, considered Dennis Avery to be weak And when Dennis was no longer useful to Jeffrey, he began talking about Dennis behind his back. Jeffrey often used Dennis as a scapegoat for their troubles, even though Dennis was one of the leading contributors. Dennis Avery decided to set apart a relatively small amount of money for his family's use with a bank account. Once again, Lundgren considered this a sin, because Lundgren wanted all of his followers' money to be given exclusively to him. In time, Lundgren convinced his followers that they had to seize the temple, from which he had stolen about $40,000, and to kill anyone who stood in their way. He would change his mind, however, and started telling his followers that they had to kill a family of five instead if they wanted to see God. As punishment for their disloyalty, he chose the Averys. At some point, he referred to the slaughter of the Avery family as pruning the vineyard. On April 10, 1989, in Kirtland, Lundgren ordered two of his followers to dig a pit in the barn in anticipation of burying the Averys' bodies. The expectation was that there could be five bodies buried in the pit. Lundgren told the rest of his followers, including the Averys, that they would go on a wilderness trip. On April 17th, he rented a motel room and had dinner with all of his followers. He then called his group's men into his room. He questioned each one as to their purpose in the action. All of the men assured Lundgren that they were with him in the sacrifice. Dennis Avery was not invited to that meeting in Lundgren's bedroom. According to followers' admissions, Lundgren later went inside the barn with a church member named Ron Luff, luring Dennis Avery into a place where the other men awaited by asking him for help with equipment for the camping trip. Luff attempted to render Avery unconscious with a stun gun, but due to a malfunction, a stun bullet struck Avery but failed to knock him out. Avery was then gagged and dragged to the place where Lundgren awaited. He was shot twice in the back, dying almost instantly. To mask the sound of the gun, a chainsaw was left running. Luff then told Avery's wife, Cheryl, that her husband needed her help. She was gagged, like her husband, but also had duct tape put over her eyes and dragged to Lundgren. She was shot three times, twice in the breast and once in the abdomen. Her body lay next to her husband's. The Avery's 15-year-old daughter, Trina, was shot twice in the head. The first shot entered but ricocheted off of her skull missing her brain, but the second killed her instantly. Thirteen-year-old Becky Avery was shot twice and left to die, while six-year-old Karen Avery was shot in the chest and head. On April 18, 1989, the day after the murders, officers coincidentally came to Lundgren's farm to talk to him. After this encounter, Jeffrey became paranoid about being caught and left Ohio with the rest of his cult moving south to West Virginia. As months went by and nothing happened, Lundgren became disillusioned, and he and his family moved to California, leaving the rest of the surviving cult members behind in West Virginia. Nine months after the killings, on January 3rd, 1990, a tip from an informant led police back to the long-abandoned farm, where the five bodies of the Avery family were uncovered. The Lundgrens became fugitives. Media attention increased, and police began to track the cult members with the fbi joining in the manhunt eventually lundgren's abandoned followers were found back east and they helped catch him and his family 13 members of lundgren's sect were arrested in early 1990 including lundgren and his wife jeffrey lundgren was given the death penalty alice lundgren received five life sentences for conspiracy complicity and kidnapping while their son damon was sentenced to 120 years to life. Ronald Luff, the key planner and facilitator of the murders with Lundgren, was sentenced to 170 years. Daniel Kraft was sentenced to 50 years to life. Five of the cult members were released in 2010 or early 2011, after roughly 20 years of incarceration. Prosecutor Charles Coulson confirmed that the original plea agreements meant that the five were to be eligible for release at the earliest possible time, but the Ohio State Parole Board had repeatedly denied earlier requests for parole by Richard Brand and Greg Winship. Both were serving 15 years to life, as well as Sharon Blunchley, Debbie Olivares, and Susan Luff. They were all serving 7 to 25 years. Lundgren followers, Catherine Johnson, tanya patrick and dennis patrick were determined not to have been involved in the murders and each received a one-year sentence for obstruction of justice the patrick sentences were suspended the ohio supreme court set october 24 2006 as his date of execution and according to the state attorney general's office he had exhausted all of his appeals On October 17, 2006, Judge Gregory Frost issued an order temporarily delaying Lundgren's execution. Lundgren attempted to join a lawsuit with five other Ohio death row inmates challenging the state's death penalty law, claiming that because of his obesity, the lethal injection would be particularly painful and amount to cruel and unusual punishment. State Attorney General Jim Petro appealed, appealed to the United States Court of Appeals for the 6th District Court in Cincinnati. The 6th Court of Appeals issued an order allowing the execution to go forward. The U.S. Supreme Court refused a last-minute request to stop his execution, and Governor Bob Taft also denied clemency. On October 24, 2006, Jeffrey Lundgren was executed at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville. I'll never understand how someone can be brainwashed into joining a cult. I would like to think that people are smart enough to not fall for this kind of thing, but it happens so much and so often that it just makes me sad. There are countless cults all around the world, some that aren't around anymore, some that are in the mainstream like Scientology. I'm also sure that there are many more that we won't even hear about until after another mass murder or suicide is committed by their leader. Please, people, be smart. Don't fall for anyone claiming that they speak to any higher power and ask you to leave your family to move to some kind of compound and live your life as a slave until you're inevitably arrested or even killed. Now, I do have one more story for you. And it's actually a very last-minute listener story from Stephanie. And it's from her experiences at Prospect Place. The mansion, when you come in the front door, has a T-shaped hallway with a room in each corner. The room that I sat in had two chairs, one on each side of a fireplace and a couple of twin beds. When you sit in this room, you can see directly into the room across the hall which had lots of bookshelves and a floor lamp, among other things. My husband stood in the hallway and was talking about the different items that he was looking at, and I noticed the floor lamp started to move back and forth, wobbling on its base. Now, I'm a chicken, so I froze and just stared. He noticed that I stopped answering and asked me what was wrong, and I pointed. At this point, the lampshade was spinning at a violent pace, and the lamp was rocking back and forth, but it never fell over. Eventually, after what felt like forever, it slowed to a stop, and my husband slowly walked over to check it out. We all but took this lamp apart, looking for some sort of mechanism or something to explain that movement, and we came up empty-handed. Towards the end of the evening, my mom and my grandma And my husband and my Uncle Mike were out taking pictures of the inside and outside of the old barn on the property. My aunt and I stayed inside. We had one walkie-talkie, and they had the other. After about 30 minutes or so, we got a call on ours, and it was my Uncle Mike. He had a very thick Pittsburgh accent, and it was very distinct. He very clearly said, Hey honey, we're about done out here. We'll be heading inside shortly. Love you. We said, okay, and that was that. Twenty minutes later, they came inside. And we said, what took you so long? And he said, what do you mean? You said, twenty minutes ago, you were done and heading back. He said, with a very unnerved look on his face, babe, I never called and said anything. Later, as we were packing up in their base camp, both walkie-talkies were on their bases, and they started calling each other over and over. We didn't answer. Prospect Place is pretty far out in the middle of nowhere, and I find it unlikely it was interference from a trucker or something like that. But I don't know. The next thing I know, they're all laughing and talking about the things that happened that night and packing, and I was sitting at this card table staring at them. I felt so angry and frustrated and wanted to physically hurt them, all of them, but especially my mom and grandma. She says she asked me what was wrong, but I didn't answer. I don't remember her asking, I just remember the rage. She told me I got into the car and immediately fell asleep as we drove away. I woke up thirty minutes later at a McDonald's parking lot and she was getting me a Sprite and asking if I was okay. I said, I'm fine, why? She told me about how I acted, and I felt strange because I couldn't remember anything except being angry at them and wanting to hit them. That feeling was gone as soon as I woke up, and we weren't there anymore. I will never go back there. The property is owned and maintained by a descendant of the original owners, and he lives in a walled-off section of the mansion, and I don't know how. That place is dark. So much pain there, from family tragedies, to a train wreck carrying runaway slaves. This place has it all. Thank you Stephanie for that very creepy story, and if you have any more, don't hesitate to send them my way. I would love to share them in a future episode. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode. I truly hope that you enjoyed the story. And if you did, please rate and review on Apple and Spotify. Also, share with any friends and family that like this kind of content. Don't forget to join us on Facebook. The group is now over 600 members. And follow us on Instagram. If you would like to help support the show, join us on Patreon, where there's three tiers to choose from. There's one bonus episode up now, and I plan on releasing the second bonus episode sometime next week. I haven't forgot about the bonus video content for the $10 tier, and I plan on heading to my first location in the coming weeks. I would also like to thank all of the members of the Strange and Hidden in Ohio Facebook group for giving me a chance. I hope you enjoy. Thank you all for listening. Make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.